social anxiety picturing us all playing a game together. Like, I'm very thankful that we don't replicate perfectly what's happening in that kid's wing every week in this room. Uh, if you're new, my name's Jamie. Uh, I'm the, the guy who gets the privilege most weeks of opening up the scriptures as we come together in this place. And uh, this morning is, is no different. If you're if you're joining us for the first time, maybe coming in wondering, where are we going to be in the Bible this morning? For the better part of the last, I think, couple months now, uh, we've been working our way through Jesus's famous Sermon on the Mount, some of the most famous words in all of the Bible, the, the lengthiest section of uninterrupted red-letter text that you'll find in all of Scripture, including things that have shaped not only the church, but, but the culture in which we live. As Jesus says things like, turn the other cheek. Love your enemies. Judge not, lest you be judged. Do to others what you wish that others would do to you. Phrases that are very familiar to many of us, churched or not. Those aren't fortune cookie statements. Going back to the very first week of this series, we talked about this. Spoken by a man who was nothing more than a good moral teacher and philosopher. Rather, those are sermon notes from the greatest sermon ever preached. What Jesus says rings forth with, with the resounding authority of the divine, the same kind of authority with which he said to his disciples a couple thousand years ago, follow me. Sermon on the Mount is a call to, to come under the reign of the king, King Jesus, this radical turn in direction from the kingdom of this world, trusting that Jesus's kingdom is truly a better kingdom because Jesus truly is a better king. The one having come, as we've talked about, on and on throughout this series to embed his will deep within the hearts of his people. If you're a Christian, that's you. So that we might sing with our lives this song of the kingdom. Far more beautiful song as Jesus has painted a picture of than, than the song of the scribes and Pharisees because it's a song of kingdom righteousness that works its way from the inside out. As Jesus comes after our hearts, deeply exposing uh, our heart level motivations and intentions bringing us to our knees to use the language of the very first words of this sermon in a poverty of spirit so that you and I might be astonished, overwhelmed by God's grace, and that we might live in light of it, more deeply fulfilling this kingdom ethic of love that we've seen throughout the course of this sermon up to this point. And so I'm not going to belabor the point this morning. We've got a lot of ground to cover. If you have a Bible, you can open up to uh, Matthew chapter 6. That's where we'll be this morning, verses 19 through 34. If you don't have a Bible, I think there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can use that Bible during your time with us this morning. You can have that if you don't own a Bible. Let me go ahead and as you're opening up, I'm going to pray for us uh, that God would, would move mightily during our time in his word this morning. Our Father in heaven, we're desperate for you this morning. Some of us don't even realize how desperate we truly are for you. We're so needy. God, we're not only desperate for your grace, uh, but desperate for your power and your wisdom. You are all powerful. You are all wise. You are all good. I pray that we would see that this morning. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to, to see and to hear and to receive all that you have for us this morning. And I pray that we would walk out of here more deeply trusting you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, functionally trusting you. I really do believe that 
as a result of our time that we can walk away from this place trusting you in the moment that we scatter from this assembly. But we're gonna need you tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and on and on we could go. I think this, this passage reveals uh, perhaps better than any other passage uh, our, our daily, even moment by moment, desperate need for you that compartmentalized Christianity just doesn't work. Pray that you would help us to see that all the more this morning, that we would lean into you, into your grace. Thank you for your kindness toward us in Jesus. In his name I pray, amen. So chapter six, that's where we are in Matthew's gospel account. We're about halfway through the Sermon on the Mount at this point where Jesus focuses in in this chapter on on what it is to live in the presence of God in both glad submission and deep dependence as children of our heavenly father. The first half of the chapter, we've talked about this over the last couple weeks, having to do with matters of religious practice, what it means to fast and, and to pray and to give to those in need in light of our relationship with our father in heaven. Second half of the chapter, which we're gonna look at this morning, having to do with the cares and stresses of the world, what it means to submit to and trust our heavenly father with our lives. Beginning in verse 19, Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal, For where your treasure is, Jesus says, there your heart will be also. Going back to the earlier part of chapter six, the last couple weeks, Jesus has just pronounced the the danger of making public recognition the motivation of our religious practice, declaring that there's no reward from God for those who seek it from men. For those who make that kind of practice of giving to the needy, that kind of practice of fasting and praying, Jesus says that the praise of man is, is all they'll ever get. In this morning's passage, Jesus says something very similar as he calls us to fix our attention on the storehouse of heaven as it pertains to where we lay up for ourselves treasures. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Think back if you were around this past summer to our study of Ecclesiastes where the author of Ecclesiastes told us that he applied his heart, his heart to search for meaning and happiness in the things of this world. And when left to ponder the conclusions of his little experiment, you may recall, the author of Ecclesiastes says, I turned about and gave my heart up to despair. And so will we, says Jesus, if we make it our aim to lay up for ourselves treasures on earth. D.A. Carson in his commentary on this morning's passage says, we must ask ourselves how important contemporary transient values will appear to us in 50 billion trillion millennia. It is a poor bargain, he says, which exchanges the eternal for the temporal, regardless of how much tinsel is used to make the temporal more attractive. Jesus says we, we live in a world in which moths and rusts destroy a world in which things fall apart. We live in a world in which thieves break in and steal, a world in which blindsiding circumstances can change everything in our lives in an instant. Not so, Jesus says, with the storehouse of heaven. For those of us who lay up treasures in allegiance to, to Jesus and his kingdom. And so, and so you might ask yourself, like, how does one do that? James and I were talking before the, the service in the back room, and I said, I, I kind of wish it was 
like Super Mario Brothers, where like I just know where to hit my head up against a block and a coin just kind of works its way, you know? That's not how, how it works. And yet, there is some level of concreteness to what Jesus says. I think the Apostle Paul helps to make some sense of it. How does a person store up treasures for himself or herself in heaven? Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, he says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And here it is. Listen to this list. They are to do good. They are to be rich in good works. They are to be generous and ready to share. Thus, Paul says, storing up treasure for themselves, there's the language of this morning's passage, as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. How does a person lay up treasures for himself or herself in heaven? Paul says, by doing good, by being rich in good works, by being generous and ready to share. In other words, to use the language of this series, by singing with our hearts and our lives the song of the kingdom, as we live in accordance with our citizenship under the reign of heaven's king. It goes back to what Jesus said in chapter five, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. To be crystal clear here, we're a gospel-centered church, and so I wanna be clear in this in saying that good works don't obtain a citizenship in that kingdom, in the kingdom of heaven, that citizenship in Jesus' kingdom is by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and finished work of Jesus alone, it's not about what we do or don't do. It's about what Jesus has done. He said it is finished. He lived our life, the life we couldn't live, perfect sinless life. He died our death, the death that we deserve to die as sinners before a holy God. He rose from the grave conquering sin and death as our triumphant king. That's what we believe as a church. And at the same time, Jesus says that as citizens of his good kingdom, by grace, through faith, we now walk in the way of the king, and in doing so, we store up treasure that can't be stolen nor destroyed. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Isn't the heart exactly what Jesus has been coming after from the very beginning of this thing? He goes on to say in verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If in the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? It's kind of strange language in terms of illustration, right? Jesus has just said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, having made clear that there are two kinds of hearts, the heart inclined to, to store up treasures on earth and the heart inclined to store up treasures in heaven, the heart enamored with the things of this world and the heart enamored with the kingdom of God and its king. Jesus here offers a different kind of imagery to make this, the exact same distinction, really. He says there are two kinds of eyes. There's, there's the, the kind that's bad, that is associated with, with an inner darkness, and the kind that's healthy, that's associated with, with an inner light. The question that begs to be answered is, what, what distinguishes a healthy eye from a bad eye in terms of the language Jesus is using here? Well, this is where, where I think the original language can be really helpful, the original Greek, because the word translated healthy in many of our Bibles, maybe it's clear or sound in your Bible, it's the Greek word haplous, which doesn't simply mean healthy 
or clear or sound, but single or unfolded, literally without folds. Think about vision. Jesus is talking about the eye here. He's referring to a single undivided focus. In other words, not having a a hidden duplicitous agenda like the Pharisees. In fact, the the antonym of the Greek word haplous is the Greek word diplous, meaning double. Remember, Jesus has been talking about this, this kingdom righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. What do we know about the scribes and the Pharisees? We know that they externally appear to have everything in order, right? Their lives in order while harboring an inner darkness and decay. We've looked at this passage before in this series. Matthew chapter 23, verses 25 through 28. Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, duplicitous ones, play actors, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, Jesus says, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus referred to the scribes and Pharisees to use that vision language as blind guides. And it wasn't because they were blind, right? Because they saw things wrongly. And all the while, so sure of themselves, which is the greatest darkness, verse 23, because it's a darkness thought to be light, a darkness that perceives itself as illuminating. Jesus goes on to say in verse 24, no one can serve two masters, not serve God and money. Love the other, will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus's language here continues to help make further sense of the previous verses as he continues to talk about this this double vision of sorts, this hidden agenda of divided allegiance. In our culture, I I think most of us know this and would agree with this, that money equals more than currency, right? Money equals meaning. Money equals significance in our culture. What you have determines who you are. There are the haves and the have-nots, and nobody wants to be a have-not, so that for Jesus to say anything countercultural about money, it, it presses on something deep within us. This desire for meaning, this desire for significance. Not to mention, if we could get a little bit more practical about it, that money is oftentimes the very means by which we seek to escape our own personal hells as we use money to afford ourselves our own functional saviors. I'll give you a couple of examples. If your personal hell is, would be something like having a poor body image, then it would be possible that a functional savior might be something good like a gym membership or a diet, both of which require money to afford us, right? You gotta pay for the gym membership. You gotta, you gotta pay for the food that would make up that diet, which is oftentimes more expensive than the boxed stuff that we might be inclined to go to that is uh, less than dietary. If your personal hell is, is being alone, loneliness, then, then maybe your functional savior would be something like a friendship or a significant other or even a pet, all of which require maintenance, cost. Friendships require cups of coffee and ingredients for dinner when you have someone over. A significant other requires the cost of dating, 
A pet requires the cost of upkeep. All those things require money. What is Jesus saying? I think ultimately what he's saying is there's a throne in the castle of your life and there's only room for one on that throne. So there's this question that lingers in this verse. Who sits on that throne? What sits on that throne? Is it God or is it money? Perhaps some other thing. Jesus doesn't leave us any gray area here, right? He says, you'll hate the one and love the other. You'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. So that if you love money and are devoted to money and God seeks to dethrone money in your life, you'll hate and despise God. And if you love God and are devoted to God and money seeks to dethrone God in your life, you'll hate and despise money. He's saying the throne can't seat too. It's the first of the 10 commandments, really. You shall have no other gods before me. Which that language of having is the language of holding or trusting in. It's more than intellectual belief. It's a heart trust. It's a worship issue, a kingdom allegiance issue. Martin Luther once said, whatever thy heart clings to and relies upon, that is properly thy God. Luke's gospel account, if you read through it, gives specific examples of both the bad eye and and the healthy eye to use that that language of this morning's passage. So that you have the story of the the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16 on the one hand and the story of Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19 on the other hand. One tells the story of a man ruled by money and it doesn't end well. The other tells the story of a man ruled by Jesus by the time the story is said and done and it ends beautifully. And so I think an appropriate question coming out of verse 24 is which of these is your story? There's a throne in the castle of your life, Jesus says, and there's only room for one on that throne. Who sits there? What sits there? The throne cannot seat two. Can we just agree, if you've been around for weeks of this series, Jesus refuses to let off the gas pedal, right? Hey, we talked about this before this morning's service as we were praying. I made mention, you know, I kind of thought coming into this series that, well, chapter five, that, that's challenging. As Jesus says, you have heard it was said, but I say to you, and he gets after things like harbored anger and contempt and lustful intent. And then you fast forward from chapter five to chapter seven, and Jesus starts talking about the, the wide path and the narrow path and, and the house or, or, or the foundation upon which we build our house and the, the dangers of one versus the other. I, I really, coming into this series, if I can just be honest with you, I was naive enough to think that Uh, chapter six was the soft, chewy center of the Sermon on the Mount. That when we got to things like our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we got to things like this morning stuff, as Jesus tells us not to be anxious about our lives, that, that that would be the sweet, chewy center of all of this. And yet it's not. We'll get there in just a second. Jesus is not letting off the gas pedal as it pertains to getting deep below the surface of our actions to the conditions of our hearts. Luke's version of this morning's passage tells us, Luke chapter 16, verse 13, and this gives us information that we don't get in Matthew's account. It says, and this is Jesus speaking, no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Almost verbatim what we see in verse 24 of this morning's passage, right? Listen to what comes next in Luke's account. 
You don't see it in Matthew's account. Luke chapter 16, verse 14, the very next verse, the Pharisees, Luke says, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. They ridiculed Jesus. Pharisees ridiculed Jesus for his teaching about God and money. The question is, why? Hey, think about this for a second. Didn't the Pharisees tithe? According to the gospel accounts, the answer is yes. In their self-righteousness, they could have responded with, and it would have made a lot of sense for them to respond with in their self-righteousness. You tell them, Jesus, these people never tithe. Hey, why are the tithers in the crowd ridiculing Jesus about a teaching on money? And the answer is, Jesus is exposing their inner darkness, their bad eyes. He goes on to say in the very next verse, Luke 16, verse 15, and he said to them, Jesus said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Like, Jesus exposes the divided allegiance of the extra super holy people as Sally Lloyd-Jones refers to the Pharisees in the Jesus Storybook Bible. Jesus shows their hearts to be just as sinful and, and unacceptable to God as anyone else as they proclaim to love God while being lovers of money at the same time. The law-abiding Pharisees, think about this, the law-abiding Pharisees guilty of breaking the very first of the 10 commandments. They couldn't even get past the first one. You shall have no other gods before me. Tragically, what should have been a response of, of self-abandoning repentance on the part of the scribes and Pharisees was one of self-righteous ridicule as is far too often the case when man's idols are threatened. Jesus goes on to say, and I love what he does here, because he not only exposes the duplicity of the scribes and the Pharisees, but he offer, also offers something hopeful for the poor in spirit, those who would truly follow him as citizens of his kingdom. He says this, and I'm gonna read the rest of this passage in its fullness. Verse 25, therefore, Jesus says, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Verse 30, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, verse 34, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I don't know about you, but I, I find it fascinating what Jesus does here. Uh, up to this point, He's talked about the heart and its treasure. He's talked about the, 
the healthy eye of, of single, undivided kingdom focus. He's talked about devotion to God as the, the sole occupant on the throne of our lives. It's this language of worship, right? This language of allegiance. And Jesus follows it with, therefore, in light of what I've just said, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. That apparently there's a kind of anxiousness that reveals a heart attachment to earthly treasure. Apparently there's a, there's a kind of anxiousness that reveals a bad eye of, of duplicitous divided focus. Apparently there's a kind of anxiousness that reveals a troublesome occupant on the throne of our lives. A kind of anxiousness that Jesus equates verse 30 with being of little faith. A kind of anxiousness that's a faith issue. So that Jesus is helping us to see that, that trust is an integral part of worship. Those two are not divorced from each other. He's helping us to see that, that trust is an integral part of allegiance, that the two go hand in hand. And, and he's so incredibly kind in the way that he does it. Right? He could have just stopped at verse 25, declaring that the appropriate response to everything he's just said up to that point is to trust God, end of chapter, on to chapter seven. But he goes on to give us this arsenal of reasons to trust God. This arsenal of reasons why God truly is trustworthy. I'm just gonna walk through this list with you and I hope that you're encouraged, that you're comforted by this. Number one, life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. Verse 25, which I take to mean one of two things. Either that leveraging our lives for the glory of God is, is bigger than those things, that we exist not simply to to survive, to live, but, but rather to glorify? Or, or perhaps it might be another possible interpretation that if you're a child of God, the basic necessities of life, they can be taken from you, make no mistake about it, and yet you will someday put on immortality. To use that language of life and the body, eternal life and a resurrection body that can never be taken from you. So Jesus says, don't be anxious. Number two, you are more valuable than the birds of the air. Verse 26. Think about this for a second. There, we see a lot of birds, for the, particularly for those of you who are Peachtree City residents. Maybe you, you um, parade through the cart paths on a regular basis. They're out and about, right? Think about this. There is no bird in all of the world that bears the image of God. But you do. There's no bird in all of the world that knows the wonder of adoption into God's family as a son or a daughter. If you're a Christian, you do. You're uniquely positioned as a son or a daughter of your father in heaven on the basis of Jesus's broken body and shed blood. If he cares for the birds of the air, will he not care for you? Has he not cared for you sufficiently already in Christ? So Jesus says, don't be anxious. Number three, anxiousness is impotent to change your circumstances. Verse 27, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his or her span of life? Like we've talked about this before. Many of our worrisome, anxious thoughts function like a false prophet, do they not? Telling us that God's not good. Telling us that God's not sovereign 
telling us that God's not wise, that if we just think about the situation just a little bit more, if we, if we breathe the air of anxiety just a little bit more, perhaps we can manipulate the situation in a way that changes the outcome. Kind of like I've used this illustration before, like a, a golfer contorting his or her body post-swing in an attempt to move the golf ball that's already in the air. Doesn't give us any more control of the situation than we had before we started worrying in the first place, does it? In fact, I would argue, and I think many of you would agree with this, that it only has the power to make the situation more difficult. And so Jesus says, don't be anxious. Number four, you will outlast the flowers and grass of the field, verses 28 through 30. That, that God is intimately and sovereignly involved in clothing the grass that withers and the flower that fades. Isaiah 40 talks all about that. How much more will he intimately and sovereignly care for you, his forever son or daughter? So don't be anxious, Jesus says. Number five, your heavenly father knows what you need. Verse 32, Coming back to last week, that language, heavenly father, our father in heaven, in heaven declaring that the earth is his footstool as he sovereignly rules over all things, including our very lives. Our father declaring that this sovereign God loves us with a love beyond our wildest dreams. The royal children of the king that we are. So Jesus says, don't be anxious. Number six, God will give you everything you need to seek his kingdom and his righteousness. Verse 33, he knit every one of us together in our mother's wombs. He knows the end of every one of our lives from the beginning. Jesus says he will give us everything we need in order to accomplish his purpose, both in us and through us for his glory. Till the day his purpose is accomplished and he takes us home. And some of that, I think, we're meant to be encouraged by what Jesus has already said earlier in the chapter. There's this communal aspect to this all. You might say, well, well, God might not directly provide for me, and yet he's called those around you with a command, when you give to the needy. So that as God's people, we should experience something of what Jesus is saying here through the church, through the beauty of this family of, of God. And some of you, I know you have experienced that beauty. And so Jesus says, don't be anxious. And then lastly, Kind of a strange verse to end on. Verse 34, tomorrow's worries are for tomorrow's mercies. That our being anxious about tomorrow, it's not gonna lead to us waking up to a tomorrow free of worry-inducing circumstances, right? We live in a world in which there will daily be the temptation to worry because the world is not as it should be, right? We're not as we should be. Even children of God, we're being conformed to the image of Jesus moving onward toward our glorified state. And yet, I love this, God does promise something for today. And he promises it each and every day that is called today, namely his mercies. Lamentations chapter three, verses 22 through 24. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. It never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Let me come back to a C.S. Lewis quote from a few weeks ago that I shared with you. 
Lewis's response to an Anglican priest who criticized him for not caring for the Sermon on the Mount very much. Lewis's response was this. As to caring for the Sermon on the Mount, if caring for here means liking or enjoying, I suppose no one cares for it. Who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a man who can read that passage with tranquil pleasure. I've got to ask, at this point in the series, does Lewis's quote resonate with anyone in this auditorium? I mean, I expected it to in chapter 5 at certain points as Jesus got under the surface of our lives under the surface of our behavior and and started to press on our hearts a little bit. But I've come to learn and expect that there are all kinds of ways that Jesus can leave us unsettled through these three chapters, through this great sermon. Maybe it was last week. Maybe it was our Father in heaven. On the basis of your understanding of what fatherhood is, maybe that's what left you unsettled. Maybe it was give us this day our daily bread in a situation, in a moment, in a season of life where you just don't feel like God's coming through. Maybe it's this morning. Maybe it's, Jesus, are you serious? Are you kidding me? Are you that naive that you think you can just say things about anxiety and in a paragraph that you can address that and then just walk on to the next topic? And Jesus says, yeah, I think I can. I'm the king. And I I think we then have to come back to the beginning of this series where the question was, will we trust Jesus when that declarative follow me unsettles us? Will we truly lean into him and trust him? Will we bow down to his declarative words? Again, going back to week one, Jesus is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. That word gospel, the Greek word euangelion, means good news. That's where we get our word evangelism. Jesus is proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Here in verses 25 through 34, he's proclaiming something better than the song of the kingdom of this world. Gotta ask ourselves, do I trust him? Will I trust him? To bring all of chapter six together, if I could attempt to do that in just a moment as we close this morning. What Jesus is saying here is there's a better song than not only the desperate song of insecure glory thieving, to go back to the beginning of the chapter, but the song of hopeless anxiousness. Namely, the better song is the song of sincerity and trust that rests in the Father's love. Knowing God as Father, we talked about this the last couple weeks, and resting in the truth that we are his children. That's the way not only to to true freedom and God-glorifying obedience, but also thinking about this morning's passage, to a life of deeper security and peace. Kinda, the kind of security and peace that goes further than simply worrying less, but, but that would seek to leverage what we have for the kingdom of heaven and its king. Our knees bent in glad submission to the will of our heavenly father as we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, a kingdom that will outlast, Jesus says, and will outshine the kingdom of this world.